the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. So glad to have you with us. Sam Maupin is producing and engineering today's program. We're grateful for that. Pedro Bartez in the Seattle area doing the same. Well, today on the program, we're looking forward to sharing with you a classic interview with Arlene McLean. She's the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. We'll also talk with uh, Sean McDowell. Dr. McDowell is going to be one of the speakers of Mission Connection Northwest here in the Portland area. Uh, we'll talk with him about that presentation. That will be in the Portland-only segment of today's program. We're glad to have you with us the day after the Iowa caucuses, so we're going to jump right in with both feet. Well, Donald Trump notched a commanding win in the Iowa GOP caucuses, more than doubling the 24% support he received back in 2016. Well, caucus goers, they braved sub-zero temperatures to deliver a resounding victory for the former president, whose 30-point win was the largest for a contested presidential caucus in modern Iowa history. Now, that's according to the Fox voter analysis of Iowa Republicans. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he edged out former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for second place, and that came as something of a surprise. The result was a much-needed boost for DeSantis. He visited every county. He invested significant time and resources in the Hawkeye State. Businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, he finished far behind the single-digit support, or rather with single-digit support, dropping out and endorsing Trump as the results became clear. Well, underscoring the extent of his dominance, the former president won almost every demographic group by double-digit margins. He was particularly strong among some of the largest groups of uh, Iowa Republican caucus goers, those without a college degree, very conservative voters, and rural voters. He won 55% of white evangelical Christians, a crucial block of Iowa voters, more than double DeSantis, 24%, and Haley's, 13%. More than 6 in 10 caucus goers consider themselves supporters uh, of the Make America Great Again movement, and most of them, at 74%, backed Trump. And a hint of the next challenge for Trump, ensuring the full party is united behind him if he wins the nomination, non-MAGA voters backed Haley by 8 points with DeSantis second. Well, DeSantis' main source of strength, the college-educated, very conservative voters and suburbanites, overlapped with both Haley and Trump's. And while he didn't win any major demographic group outright, his advantages over Haley among white evangelicals, 11 points, and those who felt abortion should be legal in all cases, 30 points, were enough to vault him into second place. Now, Haley ran strongest among college graduates, suburban voters, and political moderates. Despite her pro-life record, Haley had a notable 22-point advantage over DeSantis among voters who felt abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Well, the final few days of campaigning may have been decisive in the battle for second place. DeSantis had an eight-point edge over Haley, among those who made up their minds in the last few days, Trump held a massive 73-point advantage among those who knew who they were going to support, 
all along. Now, DeSantis had a seven-point advantage over Haley among those who had participated in previous caucuses, while first-time caucus goers backed the South Carolina's uh, the South Carolinian, rather, by an eight-point lead. Still, Trump won the lion's share of first-timers at 51%, those who caucused in years past at 51% as well. Overall, six in ten caucus goers would be satisfied with Trump as the party's eventual nominee. Far fewer would be satisfied with DeSantis or Haley. So, again, very, uh, very interesting. There was an interesting piece written by Hugh Hewitt on the subject of uh, evangelicals and how they cast their ballots in the Iowa caucus, which is unique. It's uh, uh, to all of the other contests, this being the first in the uh, run-up for the GOP nomination. Uh, he writes that um, Trump crushed it in Iowa. His colleagues at the Washington Post wondered again this weekend what evangelicals see in Trump. And the uh, provocative headline ordained by God telegraphs the reporter's answer. But that is um, simply incorrect. First, he writes, after a quarter century of grading law school exams, I can assure you as far uh, as fair grader can, there is always a bell curve in every distribution. There will certainly be some small percentage of evangelicals who believe Trump is ordained by God, but there are going to be uh, quite a few on the other end who support him, even though they don't believe they share a common faith. That's just the way it is. The identity politics that has consumed so much of the left and the elite media just doesn't control large swaths of America. Many tens of millions of voters don't vote for the person who is most like him or her, but who is most likely uh, to be good for him or her. They vote their perceived self-interest. The former president has been making this um, sale for a long time, and it's working. In the same piece, though, there is an astonishing paragraph. He writes, Trump has accused the Biden administration of discriminating against people of faith, suggesting at a campaign event in Waterloo, Iowa, that Christians and Americans of faith are being persecuted and government has been weaponized against religion like never before. Well, fact checkers, however, have debunked that claim. Experts on religious liberty, such as John Inazu from Washington University in St. Louis, cite multiple major religion-related Supreme Court cases and say religious freedom is perhaps more protected than ever. First, the most obviously, the reasons uh, cases vindicating religious liberties and especially free exercise rights make it to the Supreme Court where they're won and religious freedom protected is because the litigants' religious rights have, in fact, been trampled on long before the case reached the justices. It's um, axiomatic that if religious people are winning cases before the Supreme Court, it is because they have, been in, uh, they have indeed been wronged by state actors. So the fact checkers are simply wrong. Again, and 10 minutes with any litigator from Alliance Defending Freedom, which handles hundreds, if not thousands, of anti-religious actions every year on behalf of believers, can set any reporter straight on that question. He goes on to point out that the left is dominated by secular absolutists, on issues such as abortion, gender, and other issues. Parents who are also evangelical care deeply about their children's education and want to be fully informed of their children's record at school and any issues that they may have. Uh, the most important thing Trump has uh, going for him in Iowa with evangelicals and probably in all future primary contests is that the deeply felt belief among many people of faith that elites are after Trump as they are after him. Well, it goes on from there, but it does point out an interesting factor in all of this, making the case that Trump captured the uh, the hearts, the minds, and the imagination of evangelicals, not because they believe him to be the uh, the Messiah, but because they believe he uh, understands three, and recognizes three. the challenge they face as evangelicals. 
Well, in other news, what's next? Well, Nikki Haley bowed out of the New Hampshire debates after a third-place finish in Iowa. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished in second place in Iowa on Monday night as the race now shifts to New Hampshire and South Carolina with questions swirling about what the second-place finish will mean for his campaign going forward. Well, DeSantis, as we just mentioned, outperformed some polling expectations on Monday night, finishing at roughly 21% when the Real Clear Politics average of... Uh, Polls showed him at 15.7% before votes were cast. However, Trump won a decisive victory with over 50% of the vote, which is the largest margin of victory in Iowa caucus history in a state where DeSantis had gone all in with his campaign time and resources. That won't be the case in New Hampshire, one would presume. Now, DeSantis, the campaign, touted the performance by saying that the Florida governor earned his ticket out of Iowa. Despite the close second-place finish, questions about whether DeSantis has the momentum and the funding to compete with Trump in future states are likely to continue. The chief political analyst at uh, Fox News, Britt Hume, pointed out that a second-place finish in Iowa has historically led to securing the nomination on the GOP side. Let's not forget, he says, and I'm quoting, that the uh, second place has led to a lot of people winning the nomination in Iowa. You uh, finish uh, second in Iowa, it's worth something. He said as uh, the results were coming in on Monday night, there are a lot of places where it wouldn't be and Uh, In the coming races in the future, it won't be as much. um, But out here, uh, when you win second place, you go on and who knows, you might win the nomination. So it was significant that he took uh, second place in this first uh, contest and the nominating process for the GOP. Well, we're going to continue in just a few moments. We'll talk about the, uh, the Senate. They're expected to hold a cloture vote this evening, inching closer to passing another temporary spending pact. Uh, known uh, as the continuing resolution uh, that the uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, and House Speaker Mike Johnson agreed on to avert a government shutdown. Now, that may be to the detriment of Speaker Johnson. And I'm going to remind you of the conditions under which he received uh, the support of uh, the very conservative Republicans in the uh, in the house you're listening to the georgine rice show stay with us we'll be back in a moment you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show just want to remind you looking forward to hearing from arlene mclean her first book really god that's coming up later in this hour straddling into the next well the senate is expected to hold a cloture vote this evening inching closer to passing another temporary spending path Uh, Known as the continuing resolution that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson agreed to avert uh, a government shutdown. Well, cloture is a uh, procedure to limit debate on a bill aiming to move toward a final vote. To avoid a shutdown, it will take bipartisan cooperation in the Senate and the House to quickly pass the continuing resolution and send it to the president's desk before Friday's funding deadline. That's a quote from Schumer in a statement on Sunday night. Well, the bipartisan top-line funding agreement reached uh, ensures that America will be able to address many of the major challenges our country faces at home and abroad. It is uh, clear that the continuing resolution is necessary to give the Appropriations Committee additional time to finish drafting their bills to reflect the new agreement he went on to write. Well, on Sunday night, the Senate Appropriations Committee, they released the text of the continuing resolution to avert the partial government shutdown at the end of the week. The CR is a still laddered approach um, with deadlines extending for funding government agencies until the 1st of March and the, the 8th of March. Schumer indicated the uh, CR will 
will follow the same structure as the current one that is set to expire on the 19th and the 2nd of February. Well, this implies that the initial set of programs facing expiration includes those covering Uh, covered by agriculture, energy, water, military construction, the VA, transportation, and HUD uh, spending bills. And the subsequent set falls within the commerce, justice, science, defense, financial services, general government, homeland security, interior environment, labor, HHS education, legislative branch, and state foreign operations spending bills. Again, divided into two uh, separate uh, blocks of continuing resolutions. We'll follow that story as it develops. Uh, There should be approval uh, in the Senate and in the House, if not tonight, uh, later this week. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has uh, suspended his campaign and is throwing his support behind former President Trump after falling short on Monday's Iowa caucuses. Um, Ramaswamy, he uh, kicked off his remarks by telling his supporters his campaign was founded on speaking the truth, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. It is true that we did not achieve the, the surprise that we wanted to deliver tonight, he said. As of this moment, we, were, uh, we are rather going to suspend this presidential campaign. Earlier tonight, I called Donald Trump to tell him that I congratulate him on his victory. And now, going forward, he will have my full endorsement for pre- the presidency, he later said. Now, some suggested that his uh, presidential aspirations were, in fact, an aspiration for a place on the cabinet coming up. But that's for Ramaswamy. <laughs> to know in the days ahead. In other news, Congress is expected to pass a short-term federal funding extension known as the uh, continuing resolution I already mentioned. And Western television and anime uh, localizers uh, have recently come under fire for injecting woke language into English dubs not present in the original work, prompting some companies to implement artificial intelligence as a way of limiting human intervention or to remove them entirely. The use of AI in the industry is already well underway. On the 21st of December, the official X account for the uh, ancient Magus Bride, uh, Magna, announced uh, it would soon re, uh, return with a simultaneous internal release in English using AI translation created by the Japanese company Mantra. In addition, Fun- uh, Funimation, an American subscription video-on-demand service for anime, it recently merged with um, the Sony Group Corporation-owned streaming service uh, Crunchyroll. Well, the company has indicated it's going to use a hybrid AI localization system with humans reviewing and editing the results. Fans are split on these um, these decisions, while some argue AI translations lack the authenticity that human translators bring to the table. Others have said the move will stop localizers from placing political biases and modern social issues into translations, thus deviating from the original artist's intent. Well, Max translations, thus deviating from the, those intents, uh, a tech enthusiast and co-owner of AI product reviews, said that AI in anime... Uh, localization promises to make or rather make translation processes more efficient and accurate, but has caused controversy among creators. He noted that many critics of human translators have focused on the alleged insertion of progressive viewpoints into these translations when covering uh, rather converting from Japanese to English dubs. The fear is that AI, driven by certain ideological biases, will tamper with the intent of the original Japanese texts, resulting in a loss of the originality and cultural integrity. In other words, when um, uh, they're rewriting an agenda, when Western television and anime localizers, they translate what's already been produced into the language of the uh, the people they are hoping to uh, sell the product to in a way that 
inserts, well, they're calling it um, woke, uh, an ideological language into the text, changing the initial and, and uh, intended meaning of the entertainment. In other news, the Federal Aviation Administration is facing criticism and concern from both politicians and the public over a diversity hiring initiative that actively recruits workers with severe intellectual disabilities, psychiatric issues, and other disabilities. We're talking about the Federal Aviation Administration. All I ask is that the FAA hire individuals based on who is most qualified for the position and who will best protect our airspace, ensuring that we are all safe. That's a quote from Representative Jeff Van Drew, a Republican out of New Jersey, who serves on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, speaking to Fox News Digital on Monday. That uh, that is the job of the FAA. It's not their job to be politically correct. Fox News Digital reported Sunday that the FAA's website details a diversity and inclusion hiring plan aimed to boost diversity, including those with severe disabilities as the agency um, at the agencies, well, individuals uh, with targeted or severe disabilities are the most underrepresented segment of the, fe- the federal workforce, the FAA site states, before it details the targeted disabilities that the agency is actively working to recruit. Targeted disabilities are those disabilities that the federal government, as a matter of policy, has identified for special emphasis in recruitment and hiring, the FAA's website states. They include hearing, vision, missing extremities, partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disabilities, psychiatric disabilities, and dwarfism. Severe intellectual disabilities defined by the uh, Cleveland Clinic as people with severe intellectual disability have an average mental age of between three and six years. They use single words, phrases, and or gestures to communicate. They benefit from daily care and support with activities and daily life. Well, the FAA, which is uh, overseen by the Secretary uh, Pete, uh, Ju, Ju, Buttigieg's Department of Transportation is charged with regulating civil aviation and employs roughly 45,000 people. When asked for comment on the initiative, including what roles people with disabilities would be f- uh, fulfilling, the FAA said that the agency thoroughly seeks and vets qualified candidates from as many sources as possible for a range of positions. Now, one would like to assume that if you were looking for people with uh, certain uh, limiting disabilities, intellectual disabilities as defined by the Cleveland Clinic, that they would be placed in positions where um, that disability would not hinder the uh, work that they are assigned. But given the uh, challenges that the FAA uh, is currently facing, the leadership questions that have been raised, and the uh, the lack of accountability, many are questioning whether or not this initiative is – undermining the safety of those who uh, travel under the uh, oversight of the Federal Aviation Commission. Well, in other news, uh, Houthi forces in Yemen struck the U.S.-owned and operated container ship MV uh, Gibraltar Eagle with an anti-ship ballistic missile. This is a U.S. uh, ship. A U.S. Central Command said on Monday that although there was no reports of injury or significant damage, Uh, They were targeted. The dry bulk vessel Gibraltar Eagle was hit by an unidentified projectile while sailing 100 miles off the Gulf of Aden and suffered limited damage to its cargo hold. The vessel's uh, U.S. operator Eagle Bulk Shipping said on Monday. As a result of the impact, the vessel suffered limited damage to a cargo hold but is stable and is heading out of the area. Eagle Bulk said in a statement, the U.S. and allied strikes had not dissuaded the Houthis from targeting cargo vessels in the vital shipping corridor and uh, 
uh, a chief political negotiator for the rebel movement, told Reuters a news agency the attacks to prevent Israel ships, um, Israeli ships and those heading to the ports of occupied Palestine will continue. And despite the fact that there were um, strikes against Houthi sites by the U.S. and other allied nations over the weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in just a few moments in our next segment, a conversation I had with Arlene McLean. She is the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. That's coming up in our next three segments. And then uh, in the Portland area, Sean McDowell will join us. He'll talk about his uh, visit to Mission Connection. He's one of the keynote speakers coming up this weekend, so stay with us. Again, returning to, um, to headline news, A U.S. destroyer intercepted an anti-ship cruise missile shot from Houthi terrorists in the Red Sea. They intercepted. This is different from uh, the event that I mentioned just a moment ago where uh, Houthi forces struck a U.S. cargo ship. Uh, Days after the U.S. conducted a second round of strikes against Houthi militants and an affiliated radar site, the Houthis responded by launching an anti-ship cruise missile toward the USS uh, Laboon. Well, thankfully, the Laboon was able to intercept the missile with uh, with all hands reported safe. The stakes have been raised with the emergence of cruise missiles and their ability to go far beyond merely bloodying a vessel. Uh, They are proven ship killers that must be treated with um, due severity. The Wall Street Journal reported of the incident, the Houthi action in the Red Sea initially directed against Israeli-linked vessels have become increasingly indiscriminate, rattling uh, global markets and upending international shipping routes. As Western powers have retaliated, the Red Sea has become a new flashpoint between the U.S. and Iran-backed allies lined up around the region. The Houthis have said their action will only stop if Israel ends its military campaign in Gaza. Meanwhile, on Israel's war with Palestine, it's reached 100 days. The Jews, the Salafist theologian Rashid Rida wrote in 1898 in response to the first Zionist Congress, are the penniless of the weakest people whom all governments are expelling. If such weaklings can push back Islam, the problem of Islamic weakness reaches an intolerable breaking point. This is why the Muslim world largely sat out the cataclysmic Houthi war in Yemen, which saw 85,000 children starved to death or Assad's butchery in Syria, but now marches in large numbers for Gaza. It's why an Iranian regime uninterested in rights for its own people engages in a long, expensive multi-front war for Palestinian rights. Iran did uh, did not build Hezbollah to not use it, nor the Houthis or its uh, militias in Iraq and Syria. A war one side thinks is being fought to reclaim Islam's rightful place in history will not end in Gaza. It has, alas, only just begun. Well, the Biden White House said on Sunday that they are intensely pressuring Israel to lower the intensity of their military operations against the Hamas terrorist organization inside Gaza. Kirby said that it was the right uh, thing to do to pressure Israel to lower the intensity of its military campaign against the genocidal terrorists. Of course, it's the right thing to do during a campaign season here in the U.S. An Israeli soccer player has been released after an arrest in Turkey for dedicating a goal to hostages held by Hamas. 
Well, Israel has secured the release of the Israeli soccer player who will return home today after Turkey's authoritarian Islamic regime, headed by terror supporter Recep Erdogan, arrested him for displaying a message of solidarity with hostages held by Hamas. Turkish authorities arrested and detained the, uh, for interrogation uh, Sunday an Israeli soccer player after he called attention to the hostages Hamas kidnapped during its brutal invasion of Israel on the 7th of October. Turkish prosecutors uh, then launched an investigation against the uh, soccer player on charges of inciting people to hatred and hostility. Well, after the incident, Turkish soccer club uh, tweeted of the uh, player that he acted against the national values of Turkey and was suspended from playing with the club. The Environmental Protection Agency failed to suitably report billions of dollars in fiscal 2022 spending, the agency's inspector general determined, prompting condemnation from GOP lawmakers. The EPA inspector general found that uh, billions of taxpayer dollars were spent and lost. Well, the inspector general's uh, team found uh, award uh, level obligations or spending commitments were underreported by $1.2 billion and award level outlays or money actually paid were underreported by $5.8 billion, meaning that 12.9% of the EPA's total award level obligations and 99.9% of the EPA's total um, award level outlays were not reported in fiscal 2022. Now that is significant. Also noted by the watchdog was that the EPA also did not report any of its infrastructure investment and jobs outlays and underreported its COVID pandemic related outlays. Well, the lack of complete and accurate reporting also led to taxpayers being initially misinformed about the EPA spending and policymakers who relied on that data may not have been able to effectively track federal spending, the OIG reported. The Office of Inspector General reported, a report rather, concluded. Well, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis um, pulled the race card amid new misconduct allegations, which for me as an African-American woman is so incredibly frustrating. Uh, the suggestion is that if you happen to be a minority, you cannot be held accountable for your misconduct. Now, if she was, in fact, condemned because of her race, that is certainly worth mentioning. But her misconduct has nothing to do with her race, except she may have thought uh, she could pull the so-called race card to exonerate herself from scrutiny. Well, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis, who brought charges against the uh, former president on election interference, claims allegations brought against her of having an improper romantic relationship with a prosecutor were made because of her um, her race. Well, court documents filed earlier this month say Willis hired special prosecutor Nathan Wade, her alleged partner, to prosecute Trump and benefited financially from the relationship in the form of lavish vacations. The two went on using funds his firm received for working the case. Willis said on Sunday that John Floyd and Anne Green Cross, both prosecutors assigned to the case, are both white and were not targeted. Of course, she is the one who holds the public position. Let's see, a Hamas terror attack in Re'anan uh, leaves 17 injured, one a fatality. They claim credit. Times of Israel reported that an elderly woman was killed and at least 17 people were injured, including at least seven children and teenagers in the multi-pronged Palestinian car ramming and stabbing terror attack in the central Israel Siri, uh, city rather, of Re'anana. Uh, early on Monday afternoon during the attack, the perpetrators, two West Bank Palestinian workers in Israeli 
uh, in Israel illegally, seized at least three vehicles and rammed pedestrians in several locations in the city, also stabbing one or more of their victims. A Jerusalem Post reports that three of the victims overall are in serious condition, seven are in moderate condition, and five are lightly injured. Uh, France's foreign ministry confirmed that two of the wounded parties hold French citizenship. The Judiciary and Oversight Committees will issue new subpoenas for Hunter Biden, we learned. House Republicans on the Judiciary and Oversight Committee said Sunday that they will issue new subpoenas for President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, after his lawyer said he would uh, uh, comply with a congressional subpoena if the lawmakers issued a new proper one proper one. Comer and Jordan maintained that their initial subpoenas requesting his deposition behind closed doors were lawful and legally enforceable and again criticized his defiance of the subpoenas. Hunter Biden's legal team had asserted that their client would only testify in a public setting on the day he was scheduled to appear for the closed door deposition last week or rather last month. Hunter Biden instead delivered public remarks in front of the Capitol taking no questions. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin will work from home while recovering uh, after two weeks of hospitalization for treatment of an infection developed following surgery for prostate cancer and being AWOL for days without President Biden or other senior officials' knowledge. The Secretary of Defense was discharged from Walter Reed National Medical Med- uh, Military Medical Center on Monday, saying that uh, Secretary Austin's continues to recover well. The Department of Defense said that he will recuperate and perform his duties remotely for a period of time before returning full-time to the Pentagon. In the meantime, the Department of Defense said the Secretary of Defense has full access to required security communications capabilities. Austin said in an accompanying uh, statement that he would continue to recuperate and perform his duties from home, but is eager to fully recover and return as quickly as possible to the Pentagon. His hospitalization caught many U.S. officials by surprise when it was announced on the 5th of January, four days after he was admitted, um, that he uh, was in fact incommunicado. We'll continue to follow that story. Coming up next, I'm looking forward to a conversation, to sharing a conversation I had with Arlene McLean, author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. And uh, for the Portland audience at 5.30, Sean McDowell will join me. He's going to be one of the keynote speakers of Mission Connection. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to these next couple of segments because I have in studio a dear friend who happens to be a gifted writer, a gifted comedian, and someone who's just published a book. And we're going to talk about her book, Really God? Are you kidding me? The subtitle, Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. I think most of us have lived through those kinds of seasons, and we're going to talk about how to navigate them with your faith intact. And Arlene has lived through some, uh, as the song Amazing Grace says, dangers, toils, and snares. She came out on the other side trusting God with her relationship intact and her love for him Uh, even greater. Well, Arlene McLean, she writes, she speaks, and she goofs off with God every chance she gets. Her project, Funny Faith Walk, encompasses her writing, her speaking, and comedy with a view to encourage people like you and me and their walk with God. Her first book, Really, God, Are You Kidding Me?, weaves together real-life stories, scripture, journal prompts, and prayer in a way that makes it easy to connect with God, even when life is less than perfect, which is pretty much all the time. And when you need a quick fix to carry you through the latest 
this challenge, you can find Arlene's comedy bits at funnyfaithwalk.com. Arlene McLean, welcome. Thanks, Georgina. It's so good to be here with you. You know, I have to confess that I have longed for this day for many months uh, because I have prayed for you through the process of writing this book. And we'll talk a little bit about your faith journey, but this is just such a tremendous answer to prayer. And the fruit that has been born through the challenges that you faced has just really been an encouragement and blessing to me. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. It's so nice. It is sweet to be here with you because you were the first person I talked with about really God. When that whole came to fruition and I was like, you know, what do you think of this? And and we were like, yeah. So it has been a long time coming, but it's been great to really see what God has walked us through to get to this point. Yeah. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I have worked together mm-hmm. here at KPDQ Radio in Portland for many, many years. I haven't actually calculated how many years. Don't. It makes us sound old. We just met the other day. <laughs> exactly. We just started this. Yeah, we just uh, new acquaintances. Yeah, it just happened. Uh, anyway, we, we have worked together for a number of years. You worked in the sales department. We're the top seller here in the the Portland market. Seller probably isn't the right word, but ah, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it. Um, but you're, you, you've done a great job. You've now retired, but you and I worked together for many years here at the station. And as I mentioned, uh, we've walked together through some pretty tough things. And I've been an observer at how you've leaned into God when it would have been just as easy to just run away and say, you know, really, God, yeah, I'm done. That's, that's so true. Well, the book is based on your life experiences. You walked through some pretty tough seasons coming out on the other side, as I mentioned, with your faith intact. Tell us just a little bit about your life journey. Okay, that sounds like a good place to start, because it is interesting that all of us, uh, like most of your listeners, we're, we're coming through life, everything's going great, and then something comes up, something happens. And in my case, uh, my husband, we were happily married for 17 years, his cancer came back, and then within six months, he was dead. He had died. And I'm a widow at uh, 54 years old. And I have to confess that at that point, my faith was really shook. I was very angry at God. How could this be, God? We're doing all this work for you. My husband and I have a home group. He's a, he's gone to seminary. He, we're ministering for you. And, and why did this suddenly end? And what's fascinating is I'd always been attracted to my husband because of his deep faith in God. And he had gone through some hard times. And so it was interesting how his death made me go through hard times and strengthen my faith in a way that nothing else could have done. And so it really was fascinating to me that that's how it happened. And, you know, when you're really mad at God, I decided I'm just going to have real conversations with God. Mm -hmm. God, I'm mad at you. Why did this happen? And it was really a turning point in my relationship with the Lord to be able to become more genuine, to spend time really talking with God. And uh, so that's where some of these uh, ideas that are in the book, as far as journaling, writing out scripture verses, just the power of that really came to fruition for me. And I appreciated that. So that's how this book all kind of got started. Yeah. And I appreciate that authenticity. I think sometimes we think that we have to have King James English to approach God in a way that that impresses him by our our um, our prowess. We speak well and God bends his ear because we, we sound so attractive to him. And yet what you're describing and what I believe God wants from us is genuine, authentic conversation in which we bear our hearts. He's able to to answer our questions. He's able to bear that criticism that we might have, even though it's unwarranted and we don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And that authenticity that you write about and that I've witnessed in your personal life has really uh, been an encouragement and a challenge to me. 
Well, if you think about it, God made each of us very unique, very different. He didn't make me like you or you like me or us like other people. So in that creation of us that he made us so unique and different, he wants a relationship with that unique and different person that he created. Yeah. And so that's kind of the beauty of it is just realizing that warts and all, you know, things I find funny, people may not always find funny, but, you know, it's just the relationship I have with that, with the Lord. You know, I appreciate that emphasis on how different each one of us is. That's by design. And God doesn't want me to mimic you. Uh, he's already got you. He mm-hmm. wants me to be authentic and, and speak to him as myself. And uh, I appreciate that, that um, remembrance. Now, your book, Really God, is infused with humor and grace. It reminds uh, your readers that God is ever present and approachable. How did you learn that lesson? You, ta- you touched on it just a moment ago, but how did you learn that, that lesson? Because our natural tendency is to turn the other way and run. We see that throughout scripture. We've witnessed it in our own lives. That, that's a good point. So when this whole issue with Paul dying, my husband dies, and I go through this period of grief, and it's about three years later that I feel like I'm getting my feet back on the ground, and uh, God has become much more real to me when I get the phone call. And I'm just like, wow, out of the blue, I get the phone call. You can probably relate to it as a listener. You're just humming along in life again, and something happens. And this time, the phone call said, you have breast cancer. Mm. And I was just like... And I, it was the oddest feeling, and it was the birth of really God, because I was like, first I was, I cried, obviously, and I was upset. And then I thought, really, God? Because I'm writing this book about Paul's struggle with cancer. My mom had cancer. I have cancer. Boy, people with cancer must be my people group. I can talk to anybody <laughs> about anything. And I kind of chuckled just like that. I was like, wow. And then I saw in an instant how my faith had changed from before when Paul was alive and he died, and I went through all that grief. Now I found myself in a state of, I believe, I trust, I trust you, Lord, because I know you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that is really God. No matter what we go through life, whether we know God or not, everyone, when bad things happen, goes, really, God, what are you thinking here? And I thought, oh, that's a nice little jumping off point. You know, I appreciate your sense of humor because you don't cross the line into inappropriate, but it, it really does reflect what I think many of us are feeling. And it's that little bit of relief that, that we can express when we're in the middle of a mystery that we don't know the, the end uh, of. We don't know the all of the details that led up to it, and we don't know all the details of what we're right. going through. But it's that just relief valve that allows us to say, you know what, this is not surprising to God. It's fairly common to men, mm-hmm. and God is going to carry me through this. Really, God? What, yeah. What's going well, on? What's happening here? <laughs> and I think the joy and delight in the Lord is something he, he loves from his children. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you imagine at that point, now you've lost your husband, now you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Did you imagine at that point that what you would go through and successfully, I would add, would ultimately lead to ministry opportunity, that you would be in a position to encourage and inspire others? I did not. It's like I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I really didn't have a sense. And so Really, this is God's ministry. He created it. He made it all happen. And I often, in writing a book, people who have done it go, wow, this is really difficult and you want to give up. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you can't. It's not mine. It's his. So, yeah. Well, and I've witnessed that diligence through some pretty tough things. And it was interesting to me because there are times when you were writing that it was obvious this is very painful to look back on. It's very painful to put pen to paper, to make a record of it. 
and then to um, turn that in such a way that others can read it and find solace and help and direction. And you always urge your readers to draw nearer to God. That's really the point, not I'm funny, I'm clever. You're all of those things. But your focus is always turning and focusing our attention on God, who he is, what he's doing, what he's done, and that we can rest in him and find what we need. Yeah. And the whole issue of trying to get me out of it, my story just introduces a topic, but then it goes into the whole structure is how do you talk to God? It's about the reader. It's not, you know, here's a lifelong story about this lady who's done all these things. It's not. It's more you know, this is something you can apply and use. I just introduce topics. Yeah. We're talking with Arlene McLean. She is the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Show. I have with me in studio Arlene McLean, who happens to be a very dear friend. She writes, she speaks, and, well, she goofs off with God every chance she gets. She's the author of Really God? Are You Kidding Me? Trusting God When Life Isn't Funny. And when you need a quick fix to carry you through the latest challenge, you can find Arlene's comedy bits at funnyfaithwalk.com. It's so fun for me because I watched all of this unfold. I watched all of the um, you know, the sausage being made, the difficult parts and the tasty parts all brought together to produce this uh, this book that I think is going to be a blessing to a lot of folks. So I'm pretty excited about I it. I am too. Now, one might imagine that, and I wouldn't because I know you, I was there. Anyway, one might imagine <laughs> that you floated through tough everyday events without a hiccup. Is that true? And what do you say to listeners who at this very moment are struggling? My heart is really towards people who are struggling and and. I just want that person to know that they are not alone. It's amazing to me. All of us struggle. We all, you know, go to church and put on our Sunday best, but we all have times of darkness, of doubt, of fear. And i that's really my heart message is that you're not alone. Not only do I care about you, but God loves you way more than anything else. And so what I really try to help people understand is there's a concept here the community. We're all longing for a community. We want people around us who, A, know us genuinely, that we can be honest with, and that will support us. And so that's that's really what I try to put into my life, and I encourage them to do as well. Find a prayer buddy. I've had prayer buddies that we only talk once a week, 7 a.m., every Friday. We're on Zoom. We jump right in with what the prayer, what's going on with a life that's a struggle, and we pray. And it's just such a blessing. You have to have that anymore. Now, did you initiate that? Because I think some of us think, well, there's really nobody. Did you have to initiate that? Yes, we did. We purposely set that up. I had met this person through chambers. She doesn't go to my church. We don't have any other overlapping really in our lives. And so it's really, it's wonderful just to have someone that you can just jump in, say, here's what's going on. And that confidence, being a safe person that will keep other people's confidence. There's nothing worse than gossip in the church, because it just breeds deception. It just breeds problems. But if you can find people that are safe and share your life, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Now, really, God is designed to help readers apply their faith to everyday events, whether they're joyful events or sad events. You've had some pretty hard days. How has humor helped carry you through some of the, the life's most difficult moments and seasons? You know, I, I'm a big fan of 
finding humor every day, even if it's silly cat videos on social media or chuckle buddies, I call them. My friends, I just call up or send them something weird and we just talk about that. The point is, is that when you're looking for humor, you'll find it. But there are days, and no one's kidding you here, where you're depressed, you're in bed, you're nothing's funny, and you're in, you're not going to get out of bed. And I think there's an appreciation for that. I'm a highly emotional person. So I have a lot of humor, and I have a lot of, you know, these types of extremes. But it's like learning to live with that. And one of the things that, you know, the book, when we wrote it, we, God and I, I guess, <laughs> was putting in talking to people not only for people who are in the faith and who are struggling, you know, for the person like us, or it's a book you can hand to someone else who's struggling, or you can feel safe handing that book to someone that you want to witness to. Mm -hmm. And so it's really tried to be written and open in an easygoing, gracious manner. And I think that's what the key is. We want to be gracious to one another. You know, I would agree. Your book is not preachy. You, You write about God in a way that you're writing about your dear friend. And so you don't feel like you're eavesdropping. You don't feel like, oh, you know, this is something that I could never uh, aspire to. It's a relationship that I think your reader will long for. And you give sort of a roadmap. How do I how do I get that kind of a relationship, that kind of closeness with God, uh, whether my circumstances are extremely challenging and I feel like I've been in large measure abandoned or I'm just uh, in a season of uncertainty? You'll find that. In the way you write the book, it's very approachable and you make God very approachable in, in the same way. Yeah. And I think it's important to really think about, say, your best friend in life. How how what do you do with your best friend? Well, you spend time with your best friend. You're honest with your best friend. You trust your best friend. And so reaching those types of um, investment in time and, and genuineness and being transparent with the Lord comes back to you. But you have to really invest the time yeah. Now, let's talk about how really God is structured. Um, short stories to introduce the topic, invitations to respond, relevant scripture, conversation starters. Kind of walk us through how it's structured. Okay. What what it is, it's structured very much like that. I, I like to look at it this way. It's, uh, first of all, we're going to introduce a topic, and the topic could be anything about sex or all these topics that people never want to talk about. So there's lots of topics in the book. So we introduce the topic through this little story. Then what I do is I say, reader, what do you think of this? So you get to write, well, you know, this is about, uh, let's say, pornography. Let's just pick something that most people don't talk about. So it says, what do you, here's a story about my life with pornography and how it affected me. What do you think of pornography? What does God think about it from the, the scriptures and the Bible verses? And then the next section is, what do you think of what God just thinks about this? And how does that change your thinking? And then also, then you can pray, um, apply what you've learned and go down to a key point. And they are very simple chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the subjects. You mentioned one, but some of the subjects that you cover, because I, I find it's very comprehensive in, in some ways. Yeah, there are like four sections, five sections to the book. And first section is kind of everyday life. Life has its moments, you know, things like being rejected, um, when you have doubts, beating yourself with a doubt stick, you know, just things like that. The second one, the second section is what God wants. What does God want from us? Um, What is a relationship with God like? 
the next section is work and daily life, which is kind of fun because it talks about, am I too old to run away? It talks about, you know, life is overwhelming to me. How do I make decisions? There are chapters on all of Mm -hmm. that, on what motivates us. There's an entire section on relationships and sex. And it's funny to me how many of my friends go, oh, yeah, I went right to the sex part, which I think the next book should be all about sex because I think it's super (laughs) important. But, you know, that's just me. Um, And then the next section is hard times and grief. And so it talks about, you know, there's one of my favorite ones is it talked about when my husband was diagnosed and one of my friends came to me and said, oh, she goes, Arlene, you got to know that people will say dumb things to you. And I I was like, she's right. People say really (laughs) weird things to you when they find out you're going through stuff like that. You know, I'm right now I'm going through my mind. What dumb thing did I say during that season? <laughs> no, you did the right thing. You came to me and said, I remember it clearly. You gave me a hug and said, I'll be there with you. And it was like, yes, I knew you would be. It was it was the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> but and so there's some on, on hard times and grief and going through those processes with my husband and then sickness and getting older is really a fun one because fun because it talks about things like breast cancer jokes. Who gets to tell them and what's appropriate? Because some of my friends had very inappropriate <laughs> breast cancer jokes, and it cracked me up that, you know, it made me think about this. So I just think there's lots of fun things. My favorite chapter may be I used to be better looking. I kind of <laughs> want to have pins made up about that because I think when we get older, we're like, people don't see us as that wonderful, beautiful person we used to be. They just see us as this old person in their way at the store. So. <laughs> Yeah, I really don't want to talk about that yeah. chapter <laughs> since I'm older than you. So ah. we'll just we'll, we'll move on. Now, again, uh, one of the things I appreciate your book appreciate about your book is that you encourage uh, your readers to consider some very serious topics, but in uh, you add a lighthearted element to it that makes it bearable because some of these things are very difficult. Um, But you make it bearable. And uh, God wants us to be able to navigate through life through those very difficult things and still maintain something of a lightness in our soul. And I think this humor um, adds to that. Tell us about the funny faith walk, the comedy resource that you also uh, have available. You know, comedy takes down a lot of barriers and, and knits us together pretty instantly. And so that's why comedy kind of started out as the beginning to things. Uh, I do speak with people. I do lots of kinds of events. I teach classes sometimes. And we always start with a little comedy to get us all on the same page. And people laugh and they loosen up and they're like, okay, this lady's weird, but we kind of like her. And then they hear what you have to say. So it's just part of that. So at the website, funnyfaithwalk.com, there's a lot of different uh, ways to explore how I can come and, you know, help work with people. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Arlene McLean. She writes, she speaks, she uh, has written the book, her first book, Really God, Are You Kidding Me? She weaves together real life stories and scripture, journal prompts, prayer in a way that makes uh, makes it easy to connect with God when life is tough. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I still have Arlene McLean in studio. She writes, she speaks, and her latest book, her first, Really, God, Are You Kidding Me? Uh, It's a great book for those of us who live in the world in the 21st century. Because if you're breathing, you're going to have some pretty tough things. And some of them might seem overwhelming. In fact, they may be overwhelming. But what the book uh, endeavors to do is to help us to trust God uh, when life isn't funny and does it in a way that you 
interject humor into very sober situations in an appropriate way that helps us take a deep breath and soldier on. So I commend you uh, for that. Um, this is your first book. What's next? <laughs> I laughed when I read it. <laughs> uh, what's next? Um, you know, I have to confess, it's really it's really interesting when you reach a life goal and you say, okay, wrote a book, check. And then you're depressed afterwards because people don't really tell you that that's what happens, but it does. When it's you like write, giving birth, but you don't yeah, really. Yeah. You're done. You have post book yeah. partum or whatever. You're like, <laughs> okay. I don't, and I haven't written a stick since. So, <laughs> but God is so gracious to me. And I think that's really the point is there are seasons. And by this season of rest, I finally got the book launched in, I think it was September. Now I feel like writing again. And so I, I have several books uh, in, the, in my, the back of my mind that are somewhat in stages of done. I want to finish a book about Paul and I, and it's a memoir that's like 80% done. So I want to get that done. And then I want to do more really God books on growing older and aging. I think that's a really important yeah. issue to explore. I think the times are so difficult right now. I'm, then another one, whether it's a whole book or articles, is just how do we, you know, navigate a world that is just so hard. And uh, it can be, you know, it's like God's walking me through that day by day and my relationship with him. And, and you and I are both participants in Bible study fellowship. And I think that that is such an amazing ministry that we're able to continue to grow in the Lord in that. So yeah. hopefully there's more books. It's it's uh, interesting to retire and learn how to just kind of navigate yourself. So it's been a fun year. Yeah. Well, and you're you're relatively young for retirement, so you have a long road ahead of you, should the Lord will and you live, which is what, one thing I'm now saying to myself. <laughs> the Lord wills and I live, I will do this and that. Yeah, you know what's ironic about that? If Paul hadn't died, I wouldn't be able to be retired now and write books. So it's like the death, that terribly difficult period of time made it so that I could retire as a widow at 61. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you, for the sake of others who are listening who have a life goal, I, you know, I would like to write one day. Um, it's easy to say that. Uh, I've had people say to me, and, and trust me, I have no intention of writing, but you should write a book. Write a book, write a book about what? Do you know how many books there are in the world? I, I always respond. How do you know when God is saying, not only do you have the desire to write, but I have an assignment for you. I want you to write for me on a particular topic. How did that unfold? I have to say, I have to correct Georgine. She has written a book. Undaunted is on Amazon with your name on it and some articles in it with the Undaunted people. Okay. And it's a wonderful book. <laughs> um I've come full circle on this to just a humble stance of if God calls you to write something, you just need to write it. And then he's going to take it the steps and to the places and the people that it needs to go to. The hard part is the world kind of says, well, this isn't successful or this is successful or, you know, you just got to kind of get all that stuff out of your head and just think about that one person that might read it. I I remember being shocked and amazed when the reviews on the book um, on Amazon were people I didn't know. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is reaching people I don't even know. And that was exciting because there's only so much we can do humanly to reach all these people. But the word goes out and never comes back with yeah, that voice. Yeah. So. And there's something about being called by God to do something, to faithfully walk in 
the path that he has for you and God will bring the fruit. Yep. He's asking us to be obedient and diligent. And I've watched you over a period of, of uh, well, was it years? Years. Is that right? Years. Years. To be diligent and faithful, to purpose, to finish it, and then to bring it to full fruition. And that's the book that we're talking about today. Um, that's that's a challenge. Everybody wants the, we're going to have the, the book launch. Everybody wants the book tour but everything that goes into it from from the very beginning when God calls you to that point is where the real work is required. And that's a hard work that God does where there's no applause. There's nobody looking on, but you're just being faithful to what God is saying. And I think that applies to virtually every area of your Christian life, whether you're called to write a book or you're a musician or you're a parent raising children or whatever it happens to be. That faithfulness is what God is calling us to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if listeners want to connect with you, uh, want a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to do that? The easiest thing to do is just go to funnyfaithwalk.com because it'll pop up and there's a link right to Amazon and it's also in Barnes and Noble. So you can do that. And then you can also um, go ahead and give me just your email address and I'll send you the comedy bits. So that's kind of, it's just easier than saying, okay, because you Believe it or not, other books have been written that say, really, God, are you kidding me? I was shocked. (laughs) So it's easier. You don't have to learn how to spell my name. Just go to funnyfaithwalk.com and voila, you're there. As you're preparing for the next um, leg of the journey, you said that you're inspired to write again. Um, Any advice for those who have finished one thing and God is calling them to start something else? Again, that, that faithfulness that he's calling all of us to. It's a it's a weird message, but go ahead and rest. I think that there are seasons, and the more I do this and just walking closer to the Lord, the more I realize that I used to run through life with my hair on fire, and it's like God really isn't asking me to do that. He's asking me to just look at him every day and say, Lord, what are we doing today? And to really embrace the process of what's happening. Recently, someone said to me, he said, everything that happens to you in life is a process of um God teaching you to be more like God, be more like Jesus. And so as I'm plunging the toilet, which is stopped up again, I'm like, <laughs> how could this possibly be teaching me to be more like Jesus? He didn't have toilets. And then I'm like, ah, uh, it is the endurance. It is the, you know, you just take one foot in front of the other, do the next right thing and keep going and just turn to him at every turn. Yeah. Again, if you'd like more information, funnyfaithwalk.com. You can find out about the book there and about some of the other resources that she has available. I just have to tell you, Arlene, I am so proud of you. Again, I confess I'm a personal friend. I've walked with you and observed you through this whole lengthy season that ultimately gave birth to this book. And I'm looking forward to future work as well. And uh, just want to thank you for your faithfulness and the example that you've set for me as I think about the things that God is calling me to do. As you know, I'm caring for my 90, well, now, as of today, my 93-year-old mother, and that has required a a type of endurance that I've never um, had to um, have before. And your example has helped to inspire me to just put one foot in front of the other, plunge the toilet as many times as it requires and show up. So thank you so much for the book. And thank you for, uh, for spending the time with us here today. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a new ABC News Ipsos poll from uh, has Scranton Joe plumbing the historical depths of incumbency with an approval rating of just 33% against the whopping 58% disapproval. That's 33% of the lowest number for an incumbent in more than 15 years, dating back to the end of George W. Bush's second term. Now, we're wondering, how does a guy win re-election when he's 25 points underwater? Well, the American people um, know Joe Biden's age. Michael Tyler points out, Biden's campaign communications director. And with that age comes wisdoms, comes experience, comes judgment, he says. Whatever gets him uh, through the night, we suppose. But digging more deeply into the poll, we find this statement. Joe Biden has the mental sharpness it takes to serve effectively as president. Only 28 percent agree with that assessment, while a stunning 69 percent disagree. Can anyone imagine that number getting better for Biden in the next 10 months as opposed to worse? As they say, he's not getting any younger. It's not how old he is, said uh, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. It's what he can do. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley is in his 90s. He still gets out and runs every day. His mind is sharp as a tack. I care less about the chronological age than I do the capacity. And uh, when the person is at the podium and finishes his speech and he can't figure out which way to go, even though there are arrows on the floor pointing him in the direction that he's supposed to walk off stage, that gives me concern. Well, it gives a lot of people concern. Whether or not in a head-to-head with his uh, ultimate opponent, that's enough to lose his re-election bid remains to be seen. But at this point, it's all speculation and observation. Ron DeSantis noted a truly stunning finding from a late-breaking NBC News Des Moines Register poll of Nikki Haley's supporters. Just 23% of them said they'd vote for Donald Trump in the general election, while a whopping 43% said they'd vote for Joe Biden instead of Trump. Now think about that. Nearly half of her supporters are so Trump deranged that they'd prefer to... Um, uh, vote for the 81-year-old open-border Democrat to a um, uh, mean-tweeting American first Republican, America first Republican in Joe Trump, Joe Trump, in Donald Trump. One has to wonder, are these people really Republicans or are they um, Democrats? In any case, the finding lends weight to the suspicion of the GOP base toward Haley's brand of establishment Republicanism, as DeSantis points out. NBC News tried to accentuate the positive. These new findings further illustrate the degree to which Haley is bringing in support from independents. Democrats and Republicans who've been uneasy with Trump's takeover of the GOP, fully half of her Iowa caucus supporters are independents or crossover Democrats, according to the survey result. Haley ended up finishing third in Iowa yesterday, the disappointing showing, given that she'd pulled ahead of Ron DeSantis in late polling, but now it's on in New Hampshire, where she polls much more strongly, in large part due to the weirdly open nature of the Granite State primary, in which independents and Democrats can vote in the Republican primary. There, she trails Trump by just 14 points, but again, one has to wonder just where that support is coming from and if those numbers actually reflect, reflect where the electorate is. Well, in recognition of MLK Day, the FBI issued a social media post on X that included the following statement. 
This hashtag MLK Day, the hashtag FBI, honors one of the most prominent leaders of the civil rights movement and reaffirms its commitment to Dr. King's legacy of fairness and equal justice for all, end quote. However, thanks to X embracing the spirit of free speech, a community note was affixed to the post that added appropriate historical context. That note read, the FBI's manipulation tactics to influence him to stop organizing uh, engaged in surveillance of King, attempted to discredit him and use that manipulation. King's family believed the FBI was responsible for his death, end quote. Well, the truth is that the FBI and King did not have a chummy relationship as the agency perceived him as a threat. Of course, today, given King's popular legacy, the FBI would love nothing more than for its abuse of the civil rights leader to fall down the memory hole. But free speech brings it back up again. Well, Joe Biden's secretary of the Department of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, apparently has no sense of humor. The U.S. Federal Highway Administration is a, a division of the Department of Transportation, and it recently released an updated 1,100-page manual that included a section regulating changing message signs. Included in the updated regulation is what amounts to the uh, forbidding of humorous CMS messages. The regulation reads in part, messages with obscure or secondary meanings, such as those with popular cultural references, unconventional signed legend syntax, or that are intended to be humorous should not be used as they might be misunderstood or understood only by a limited segment of road users and require greater time to process and understand, end quote. In other words, humor is dangerous when driving. But is it? Well, studies show that humorous CMS messages have proven to be more effective at positively impacting traffic because they are not ignored as frequently as information-only CMS signs. But for uh, the secretary, which uh, makes a habit of finding offense at everything, humor must not be tolerated. Well, sadly, two Navy SEALs have been lost at sea, and another grim reminder of the great sacrifice that our nation's elite warriors routinely make on behalf of their country. Two Navy SEALers, SEALs rather, are missing at sea after having fallen into rough nighttime waters in the Gulf of Aden while raiding a small suspicious ship off the coast of Somalia. As was reported, the two SEALs were on a mission chasing shipments of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. The SEALs were attempting to board a ship they suspected was falsely flagged that could have been smuggling weapons. The revelation comes amid reports that the SEALs went missing after conducting a nighttime interdiction mission Thursday off the coast of Somalia. NBC News added the SEALs were trying to climb into a type of small boat known as a dhow on Thursday night when one of them fell in amid the rough seas and a second sailor jumped in to rescue the first as protocol dictates and both disappeared into the darkness. The waters in the Gulf are warm and commanders remain hopeful that the two warriors may yet be found alive. American spirit, a good principle. Dan Marburger, the principal at Perry High School in Iowa, recently succumbed to the injuries he sustained when he sought to defend students against a gender-confused student who attacked the school earlier this month. According to officials, Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way as the perpetrator opened fire at the school. Marburger literally gave his life to save students under his care. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds called his actions that day selfless and historic, heroic. And she ordered flags flown at half-staff until sunset on the day of his funeral. Dan Marburger, a principal at Perry High School in Iowa, who laid down his life for his students.
Iran claimed responsibility for a strike near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq, and Hamas released a cruel propaganda video revealing which hostages are dead and which are alive. Fanny Willis goes to church and tells the congregation she's being targeted because of the color of her skin and not her unethical actions. The White House is swatted by a prank caller claiming the residence was on fire. We talked yesterday about this phenomenon, swatting. It's a way of um, trying to get back at your political and ideological enemies. It's grown in popularity of late. Eric Adams uh, will put an illegal immigrant shelter under curfew due to rising crime and complaints of begging. Joe Biden's donors made up most of Hunter's art sales, according to witnesses, and German tractors clogged Berlin as farmers' protests reach a climax there. Well, on this day in history, 27 B.C., yeah, we went way back. Caesar Augustus is declared the first emperor of the Roman Empire by the Senate. 1547, Ivan IV, a Russian better known as Ivan the Terrible, is crowned czar. 1865, Union Major General William T. Sherman decrees that 400,000 acres of land in the South would be divided into 40-acre lots and given to former slaves. The order, later revoked by President Andrew Johnson, is believed to have inspired the expression, 40 acres and a mule. 1920, prohibition begins in the United States as the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution takes effect one year to the day after its ratification. It would later be repealed by the 21st Amendment. And 1935, fugitive gangster Fred Barker and his mother, Kate Ma Barker, are killed in a shootout with the FBI at Lake Weir in Florida. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just taking a look at some of the events that took place on this day in history. 1978, NASA names 35 candidates to fly on the space shuttle, including Sally Ride, who would become America's first woman in space, and Gion S. Bluford Jr., who would become America's first black astronaut in space. 1991, the White House announces the start of Operation Desert Storm to drive Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. Allied forces would prevail on the 28th of February, 1991, just months later. 1992, I should say weeks later. 1992, officials of the government of El Salvador and rebel leaders sign a pact in Mexico City, ending 12 years of civil war that left at least 75,000 people dead. 2003, the space shuttle Columbia blasts off for what turned out to be its last flight. On board is Israel's first astronaut, Ilan Rahman. The mission would end in tragedy on the 1st of February when the shuttle broke up during its return descent, killing all seven crew members. 2007, Senator Barack Obama, the Democrat from Illinois, launches his presidential campaign. 14, the Vatican is called to account for the global priest sex abuse scandal as U.N. experts in Geneva interrogate the Holy See for eight hours about the scale of the abuse and what it was doing to prevent it. And finally, also on this day in history, 2014, the U.S. Senate votes 72 to to 26, rather, for a $1.1 trillion government-wide spending bill, sending it to President Obama for his signature. 
Well, I'm looking forward to Mission Connection that's taking place here in Portland this weekend, Friday night and Saturday at Sunset Church. And by the way, if you would like to come, it is free of charge, but you do need to register. It's a wonderful, wonderful conference that can help encourage you, inspire you, to give you direction, and to clarify your calling uh, as it relates to the Great Commission, as it applies to every one of us. So that's coming up this Friday and Saturday, again at Sunset Church. To register, go to Mission Connection, and that's C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N, missionconnection.global, for all the important details and to register. But while thinking about that, I uh, came across an article written by Daniel McCarthy, and it's simply titled, Will Africa Save America? And it's an interesting prospect given some of the challenges that we face in this country uh, with regard to the Christian faith. And uh, McCarthy writes, a century ago, the Catholic intellectual Hilaire Bellot wrote, Europe is the faith. Today, conservative Christians, Catholic and Protestant, increasingly say, Africa is the faith because the demographic future and the strongest commitment to traditional teachings is there. At a time when the American right is strongly opposed to immigration and globalization and the left uh, casually portrays conservatives as racist, many Christians who make up the Republican base and much of the center right elite, too, are looking to the developing world for hope. Africa has galloped population a galloping population growth, while birth rate in the United States, Europe, Eastern Asia are below replacement levels. The United Nations estimates that by 2050, there will be 2.5 billion Africans and the growth won't stop there. Nigeria, closely divided and hotly contested between Muslims and Christians, already has a population of nearly 240 million, with a birth rate of 4.5 children per woman compared to America's 1.8 per woman. Ethiopia, a Christian-majority nation, has approximately 120 million people and a birth rate of 3.8. The United States is also a Christian-majority nation, but the majority here is dwindling, with only 64% of Americans now identifying as Christian, according to Pew Research Center data. The numbers don't tell the whole story. There's also a qualitative difference between the faith in Africa and its character in the United States and Europe. African Christianity is, on the whole, more conservative. America's traditionalist Catholics were dismayed by a recent statement from the um, dicastery of the doctrine of faith that allowed blessings for same-sex couples under limited circumstances. No, the Catholic Church is not sanctioning same-sex marriage, but conservatives fear the guidance set out a a fiducia supplicants I'm not Catholic, and I apologize, I don't know the Latin, is a leap in that direction. Yet if Rome under Pope Francis is a source of consternation, Africa offers conservatives reassurance. African bishops issued a statement of their own. The extra liturgical blessings proposed in the Declaration cannot be carried out in Africa, they announced on the 11th of January. We, the African bishops, do not consider it appropriate for Africa to bless homosexual unions or same-sex couples, because in our context, this would cause confusion and would be in direct contradiction to the cultural ethos of African communities. Well, one would hope it would go deeper than that, uh, but nonetheless, that's the quote. The cultural ethos of American communities and Europe's is what troubles conservatives. Here, same-sex marriage finds wide acceptance among mainline Protestants and many Catholics, and some conservative Christians are coming to feel like strangers in their own churches, but they feel at home in their hearts with the African church. 
Christianity has always been a global religion, an aspiration if not reach. Jesus' disciples not only evangelized to the Roman Empire and the Germanic tribes to, the, to its north, but it also sent missions east to India and beyond. Ethiopia became Christian by the 4th century, and North Africa under the Roman rule produced such early Christian leaders as Athanasius and Augustine. Yet this history bears a warning that today's conservative Christians, with all their hopes for the global South, must heed. Belloc could write, Europe is the faith, because outside of Europe, Christianity met with bitter and often bloody and conclusive setbacks. Islam conquered North Africa, and before the age of European colonialism, Christianity had little permanent presence south of the Sahara Desert. The growth of Christianity worldwide in China, as well as sub-Saharan Africa, has been strongest during the centuries of European and American ascendancy. Earlier churches planted in Persia, India, and farther east were tenacious but largely unsuccessful, perishing from persecution or the perception of being an exotic foreign faith. There are millions of Christians in the Middle East and Turkey, lands under Roman authority in Jesus' time, and for centuries after, but Islam is dominant. And even if in Africa, Islam is now growing more quickly than Christianity. In places, violent, uh, in places violence accompanies that expansion. Between December 23rd and Christmas Day, Muslim Fulani tribesmen launched attacks that left hundreds of Christians dead or wounded in the Nigerian state of Plateau. Early Christians believed that the Roman Empire, for all its sins, served a providential role in creating the worldly conditions for the spread of Christianity, even among the people who ultimately conquered the Roman West. Europe and the United States have likewise fostered an environment in which Christianity flourishes on a global scale. Will a post-Christian Europe and America sustain that environment? Or if Christianity succumbs to culture wars here, will Christianity everywhere be in mortal danger? Conservatives are right to take heart from the religion's growth in Africa. Yet, if the civilization that Christianity created in Europe and America cannot survive here, the prospects for Christian civilization anywhere are bleak. The West is not the faith, but it is the moral background on which the, the future of the faith on several continents depends. Well, the truth is, it's not the continent on which the faith depends. It is on the cross Jesus' great commission and his people serving him faithfully. But it is an interesting perspective to consider in these days. Well, we are out of time. We appreciate your joining us and hope you'll be here with us again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.